Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 61 and the rock that is higher than I. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Almighty. You are Jehovah. You are the self-sufficient one. You are the rock of ages. You are the fortress. You are you are a rock and a, and a refuge, a very present help in time of need, as David prayed in the Psalms. And so, Lord, as we look at this great text before us today, Father, I, I pray that first that you would take this word and that you would plant it deep in our hearts in the midst of our anxiety, our discouragement, our frustration, our hurt, our the problems of life. Lord, we thank you that your word speaks to the whole of our lives under and by and because of the lordship of Christ over all. There is not one square inch over which you do not say mine, 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 mine. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over all and in all. So we pray now as we look at this text that you would take it and plant it on the good soil bed of our hearts that we might hear and that we might heed and we might obey by the grace of God through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us today. And Lord, uh, use even this time together now to open eyes, to open ears, to hear the word of the Lord and repent and believe and put their trust in Christ alone. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it's true and that it's living, that it's active, that it pierces and through the heart and the flesh and the marrow, and that you use it to, to irresistibly draw sinners to Christ. So thereby, they might repent and believe and put their hope and trust in the Lord. So we thank you, Lord, for this time and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them, please, to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, which says this. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, for you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. William O. Cushing penned his famous hymn after a period of personal frustration. For years, an active preacher and pastor, Cushing was forced into early retirement by his wife's death and his own poor health. 
And more than the isolation, Cushing struggled over his ability to serve the Lord as he had once done. He prayed this prayer, Lord, give me something to do for thee. He was soon contacted by Ira D. Sankey, that famous song leader who accompanied Dwight L. Moody on his evangelistic crusades. And Sankey said, send me something new to help me in my gospel work. And Cushing sent him the text of the hymn, Hiding in Thee. Connecting his own trial to David's theme in Psalm 61, Cushing stated that the hymn was the outgrowth of many tears, many heart conflicts, many soul yearnings. The hymn's long popularity suggests that many others have struggled through many different and similar conflicts and struggles, learning with Cushing to turn their hearts to the Lord for help. Cushing's hymn exclaims, Oh, safe to the rock that is higher than I, my soul in its conflict and sorrows would fly, so sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. If William Cushing wrote his hymn out of the isolation of ill health, David wrote Psalm 61 from the end of the earth. Verse 2 of this psalm says, Now, we're not told the occasion in David's life to which this refers. Many scholars assume the setting to be his brief exile during the rebellion of his son Absalom. It is equally possible that the king wrote of his distance from Jerusalem during one of his far-flung military campaigns, such as his battle against the Armenians, which took David as far north as the Euphrates River, according to 2 Samuel 8.3. Whatever the occasion and the lack of specificity helps us to see ourselves in this psalm. David was experiencing success, I mean, excuse me, a forlorn sadness coupled with an anxious distress over unspecified troubles. He confides in Psalm 61 too, my heart is faint as he calls on the Lord in prayer. And we might think of someone feeling isolated and at the ends of the earth in a number of ways. For example, the disconnected nature of modern society leaves people struggling with a profound sense of loneliness. According to a, pub, a study published in The American Psychologist, the more time people spend on the internet, the more likely they are to exhibit symptoms of social isolation, such as depression and loneliness, since electronic relationships lack the dynamics of real life in the flesh, friendship. Some of the most isolated people are those who zealously are engaged in Christian service, especially those who carry the gospel in distant places. The famous missionary William Carey once wrote in his journal, Oh, that I had an earthly friend on whom I could unbosom my soul, that is, unload his burdens. David shows us that when we feel alone, we should draw near to God in prayer as he did. In, in, in the first two verses of this psalm, he says, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. Now, however far we may be from the comfort of family and friends, God is always as near as the prayer of our hearts. And this is why fellowship with God through his word, through prayer, is the best antidote to isolation. Paul wrote this in Romans 10:18. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, so that the Christian who opens his Bible finds God speaking to them through his word that they read out loud. Likewise, the believer who turns to God for fellowship and prayer will experience the blessings spoken of by David in Psalm 38, or excuse me, Psalm 34, 18. 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, some people are not only lonely, but they feel very abandoned from all human help and frightening predicaments. One Crisis Pregnancy Center newsletter tells the story of a 16-year-old girl who became pregnant. Now, her first, her friends tried to exclude her in social activities, but the demands of pregnancy soon isolated her from those friends and their light night carousing. And so she began watching TV, she began reading, but before long, she was spending much of her time crying in her room. It was her mother who gave her the best advice. My mother told me to trust in the Lord, and he would give me the strength to do what I had to do. I began to spend a lot of time praying, and I found that I was no longer alone. I have a friend who was always there to listen. That friend, she says, was Jesus Christ, and he was the cure for all my loneliness. And so whether we are isolated from the worship of other Christians, we're discouraged by trials, lonely because of the demands of work or ministry or something else, or distressed by the consequences of our own sin, the opening lines of Psalm 61 remind us to call out to the Lord, who is graciously willing to listen and to give strength to our hearts. Psalm 61 suggests that David was not only lonely, but he was also in danger, since he speaks of longing for entry into a rock of shelter. We see this in Psalm uh, 61, 2-3, the most memorable lines in this prayer for pleading to God for help, which says this, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. And throughout this, his Psalms, David often refers to a rock as a strong place of shelter from enemies. And this isn't surprising since during his early years of flight from the violent pursuit of King Saul, two of David's best hiding places were the rocky caves of Adullam and Engedi. David saw these solid places of refuge as symbolic of God's sovereign protection. In fact, in Psalm 62, 5-6, he says, God alone is my rock and my salvation. And when David speaks of a rock that is too high for him, he means that he needs a place of refuge high enough from the enemy's reach. And yet his problem is that he himself cannot reach that secure place. It may be Jerusalem with the rock of Mount Zion as a place where God dwells that David has in mind that he cannot reach during his exile. And he may equally be referring to a subtle place uh, an attitude of faith that, and the peace that it gives, which he finds hard to attain with his faintness of heart. Now, whatever the situation, David is asking God to lift him up to that safe and strong and secure place where he can look down on his foes without fear. And there are good reasons today why Christians tend to read David's reference to the rock that is higher than I as pertaining to Jesus Christ. The Bible frequently uses the imagery of a rock with respect to Christ in the gospel. Jesus described Peter's confession of faith in Christ as a rock on which he would build his church in Matthew 6.18. Paul looked back on the rock from which God provided water to Israel in the wilderness, saying the rock was Christ in 1 Corinthians 10.4. And when Moses sought a glimpse of the glory of God that the Lord placed him safely in the cleft of a rock in Exodus 33.22. And this experience, too, points to us to Christ. For it is in Christ that believers receive the spiritual sight to see the glory of God, according to John 1.18 and 2 Corinthians 4.6. 
And because of these connections, August Toplay wrote of Jesus, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And whenever we think of Jesus being higher than we are, we rightly consider his perfect life of obedience to the Father, which is so much higher than our sinful failures. We might even equally reflect on his deity as God the Son, his work on the cross to atone for our sins, his resurrection from the grave, his subsequent ascension to glory. And in all of these ways, Christians look up to Jesus and worship the one who is infinitely higher than us. And when David speaks of his saving rock as being higher than I, his main point is that he needs God's help to reach to safety. And not only is that rock higher above him, but in his own strength, David cannot gain entry into it. This predicament describes the sinner's soul in the presence of Christ. Only Jesus Christ can save, but we cannot reach him until God lifts us up. We must believe in Christ. But our hearts are unable to do so unless God converts us with his regenerating power. And this problem of unbelief, it arises from the spiritual bondage of sin. So that Jesus taught in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so the way to be saved is to cry to the Father to give us the faith that will lift us up to Christ and to his salvation. And even after we've been brought to saving faith, Christians will sometimes find that we cannot enjoy the blessing of salvation through God's gracious hand lifting us to them. Christ gives us an assurance of forgiveness, justification, in his imputed righteousness, peace of conscience, and a settled hope because of the sovereign grace of God. And yet we must pray in order to experience the reality of these saving gifts, asking God to raise us to the rock of safety and peace. And yet, if you've never believed, never put your faith and trust in Christ today, you should ask God to grant you faith as the free gift of his grace, as Ephesians 2.8 says. This is the kind of prayer which Jesus said in Luke 11.9, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Even as believers, we should appeal to God frequently for the ministry of his spirit, apart from which we are too weak to climb up to the gospel truths that will cast away our fears. According to Jesus, such a prayer is certain to be granted. After all, he reasons if earthly fathers are glad to help their children, he says this, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now let's talk about images of God's safekeeping of his own. Sometimes we have to wait for God to answer our prayers. Maybe that's true for a raise or some other situation, maybe infertility, and you want to have a child or some sort of situation with your family or on and on. And yet, in this case, what David experiences is God's spiritual help even as he prays. And no sooner does he ask to be lifted up to the rock than he begins remembering the various ways that God has helped him before. In Psalm 61, 3, he says, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. And so his prayers are already giving way to praise. Psalm 61, 3-4, it cites a series of four images by which David rejoices in God's gracious safekeeping. And the first is a general statement, You have been my refuge, in verse 3. David knows what it's like to be on the brink of capture and death, to cry out to God for help, and he knows what it's like to discover that God has provided a safe place of safety. 
A classic instance arose when David and his followers were hiding in the cave of Engedi while Saul's army was searching on the, in the valley below. And so thorough was God's protection that when Saul discovered David's cave, that evil king entered alone and unawares, placing himself at David's mercy. And that episode enabled David to prove his innocence by refusing the opportunity to harm or even kill the tyrant who had falsely accused him. Reflecting on this and even other situations, David realized that God was a refuge who was keeping him safe. Now, second, David refers to the Lord as a strong tower against the enemy in Psalm 61.3. A tower is part of a city's fortifications, protecting not only the king, but also his treasured possessions. And whereas one may hide in a refuge, a strong tower provides a vantage point from which to fight effectively and defy the enemy. Proverbs 18.10 says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tire. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. And third, David exclaims in Psalm 61.4, Let me dwell in your tent forever. Now, he's talking about more than safety in a secure place, of enjoying close communion with God in that place. Joseph A. Alexander says to dwell in God's tent or house is to be a member of his family, to enjoy his bounty and protection, and to live in intimate communion with him. God most dwells in heaven, and so to long for his tent is to seek his company in heaven for eternity. God's tent on earth was the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. The tabernacle ritual presented various pictures of the saving work of Christ, especially the sacrifices for sin and the sprinkling of atoning blood on the mercy seat that was atop the Ark. To dwell in God's house today, we must plead the grace that is offered at the cross where Jesus died for sinners. David Dixon comments, The ground of all spiritual consolation is in the mercy and grace of God offered to us in Christ, represented by the wings of the cherubim stretched out over the mercy seat. There faith finds a rest and a solid ground able to furnish comfort abundantly. Now, David's fourth image for God's safekeeping is that of a mother bird covering her vulnerable chicks with her wings. Psalm 61.4 says, Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And this image speaks not only of protection, it speaks of comfort. Drawn close to the mother's womb and warmth and permitted to see only the shelter of her feathered wings, the baby birds can no longer see the danger outside and their fears are put to rest. Likewise, as we draw near to God and direct our thoughts to Him, the terrors of worldly dangers recede and our hearts are brought to peace. Now we should notice that this succession of images, it grows progressively more intimate and their provision of salvation even more extensive. This movement from security to intimacy, it shows what a difference it makes when we commit ourselves to prayer. We are frightened, we're distressed, and so we call out to God, and our hearts are assured of safety in His refuge. And not only are we safe, but God also reminds us that our salvation treasures are secure uh, behind His tower of strength. Receiving assurance and growing confident through prayer, we begin to commune with God, and we desire the, the light of His glory. In adoration, we are drawn close to his heart so that earthly troubles recede from our minds as the feathers of God's grace touch our hearts. And with this progression of image, David pictures the peace of God, which passes all understanding, which Paul promises to believers when we pray in Philippians 4, 7. 
In fact, this sequence, it shows how the believer's life should progress in terms of communion with God. We first come to the cross. We seek a refuge from God's wrath on our sins. And when we get to know Jesus and we learn the doctrines of Scripture, we gain assurance and we take up the more confident stance of one stationed in a high tower. And based on our assurance, we begin nurturing our relation with God by meditating on His Word, deepening our prayer lives, and learning to trust the all-sufficient grace of our Lord Jesus. As we come more and more to think of ourselves as God's dearly loved children, as we see in Ephesians 5.1, we become increasingly heavily minded, and we begin regarding the trials of life as which is what Paul termed a light momentary affliction that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, as 2 Corinthians 4.17 says. Now, by remembering who God is for him, David also recalls what God has done for him. In Psalm 61.5, he says, For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. For God to have heard David's vows is to have accepted him among the God-fearing company of the Lord's servants. When the Israelites spoke of the heritage of God, they were referring to the land and to all its blessings. From the land that God gave, grain sprang up to feed them, and, to, and the fruit of the vine uh, ripened to give gladness to their hearts. And if the first half of Psalm 61 is distinctive to that reference to that rock that is higher than I in verse 2, the second half is notable for its remarkable prayer uh, for blessing on Israel's king. For in thinking of the blessed land that God had given, David was moved to pray for the kingship which God had settled under David and his offspring. And he prayed in Psalm 61.6, Prolong the life of the king and may his years endure to all generations. Now, David may be thinking, especially if Psalm 61 was written during Absalom Rebellion when David's kingship was in grave danger. And whether David is thinking of threats to himself or he's petitioning God for the long life of all the sons who will sit on his throne, he realizes that the peace and the blessing of the nation flow from the stability of his kingship. And so obvious is the connection between king and kingdom that monarchs throughout the world are greeted with words that match David's sentiment. Long live the king. We know that David did reign for many long years, as did some of his most godly heirs, including Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, and Hezekiah. And while David may may have the earthly line of kings in mind, his prayer includes requests that can be fulfilled only in the divine kingship of his descendant, Jesus Christ. And so he prays in verse 7 of Psalm 61, May he be enthroned forever before God. And like all the best prayers, David is only asking for what God has promised to do. In the great covenantal promise recorded in 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, God declared to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And just as Israel's blessing of peace and prosperity, it flowed from the stability of David's kingship, The same is true for the throne of Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom of salvation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism 26, it details Christ's kingly ministry as consisting in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. 
all the blessings that believers look for in salvation, including our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our glorification, they all rely on Christ fulfilling this royal call to conquer, to protect, and to provide. And under their righteous kings, the Israelites were blessed with the favor of God. And But when a king died, thus whole nation watched in anxiety to discover the quality of the ruler who would follow. And all too often the blessings gained through the faith and obedience of one king were lost through uh, the idolatry and sin of his successor. Now ultimately Israel's king of ship, his king, the, ultimately Israel's kingship fell under God's judgment. So the nation was destroyed and led into captivity. But the kingdom of Christ will never fail since God has fulfilled his promise for the true king to be enthroned forever as we see in Psalm 61, 7. In Jesus, we have a king who has passed through death and the grave to be enthroned forever at the right hand of the Father, never to falter and never to fail. Now, the importance of Christ's reign was taught to the prophet Isaiah when he was bereft with a grief over the death of King Uzziah, who had reigned in blessing for 52 years. Isaiah wandered into the temple seeking comfort for uncertain times, and there God gave him a vision of the true sovereign Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up with the seraphim worshiping before him with cries of holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. The earthly king may have died and his successor may have led Israel into disaster, and in fact it did. But reigning above it all is a true king eternally enthroned to give salvation through faith. And so we see Israel's vision fulfilled in God the Son. For the Apostle John tells us that Isaiah saw Christ's glory and spoke of him in John 12, 41. In fact, similarly, in Psalm 61, David speaks of Jesus' eternal reign on which our salvation is based, and he prays for Christ to be enthroned forever in Psalm 61, 7. And it was for this cause that God the Son was born of the Virgin, taking up a human nature as of offspring of David and became the Messiah King who lives forever to secure the salvation of his people. At Jesus' birth, the angels therefore sang, The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. In Luke 1, 32-33. Because God has provided our everlasting king, the subjects of Christ's kingdom will never know a single day in all eternity when Jesus is not reigning over our salvation. The Savior who loved us enough to pay the penalty of sin in our place is now the Lord who reigns enthroned as king forever. Moreover, David prayed for God to appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him in verse 7. Jesus himself may look to the love and to the faithfulness of God the Father to uphold his kingdom. These twin graces, the King James Version renders them as mercy and truth, are the banner waving over the kingdom of Jesus. The doors of Solomon were buttressed by two great pillars, Yakin and Boaz in 1 Kings 7.21. Likewise, the two pillars of mercy and truth uphold the entryway into the kingdom of God. Jesus extends mercy through his cleansing blood to sinners who repent to believe uh, the truth of God in the word to the world. And just as Jesus lives forever and his throne endures for all eternity, truth and mercy will always endure as watchwords of his kingdom. Charles Spurgeon says this, Eternal love and immutable faithfulness are the bodyguards of Jesus' throne, and they are both the providers and the preservers of all who in him are made kings and priests unto God. 
Now, with these exalted thoughts of Christ's eternal throne in mind, David concludes in verse 8 of this psalm by resolving to worship the Lord in reverent obedience. And he says, So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. These words provide a good summary of our Christian duty and the right response to the great salvation revealed through Jesus Christ. David pledges to live always to God's praise and to obey God's word carefully throughout his life. This is how believers live when we're confident that our eternal blessing is secure in the endless reign of Christ the King. We abide in his word, bearing God-honoring fruit in our lives, and thus, as Jesus said, prove to be my disciples in John 15, 8. Does it seem mundane to live for God's praise while doing our Christian duty day by day? Well, according to David, glorifying God through daily obedience is anything but dull. Instead, it describes the high life on the rock that is Christ. Just as Christ is enthroned before God, as we see in Psalm 61, 7, we also live and we serve God in his presence. And since our king will always reign, we will live forever in his glory as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, who are called out of darkness to proclaim the excellencies of God who has received us into his light, as 1 Peter 2.9 says. And let us notice this glorious progression experienced by the believer who travels along the path marked out in Psalm 61, a path that God invites us to take with the psalmist. First, David says, I cry, and then he takes refuge in God in verses 1 and 4. And having trusted in God, he then desires to dwell near to God's heart. And finally, he resolves always to sing praises to the name of him who gives mercy and truth in uh, verses 4 and 8. So are you far from God today? So far as salvation is concerned, are you lost at the ends of the earth? Perhaps God has led you there to learn the wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done for sinners in his death, burial, and resurrection. Begin a new eternity by asking him to lift you up to the rock that is higher above, that you may be saved from your sins and start living the elevated life of fellowship with God in obedience and praise and for his glory. You know, as we wrap up our time together today, It's not lost on me that the author of this, David, in this Psalm 61, he says and talks about the steadfast love of the Lord. After all, this is the Hebrew Hebrew word is hesed here. And what hesed means is covenant loyalty or faithfulness. What David's praying, he's expressing his trust in the character of God. This is what's so wonderful about the Psalms. That that our God who he sees us, he, he knows us through and through. There's nothing beyond his gaze which he sees through to the joint and the marrow. He sees through to the heart and to the heart intentions. And yet his love, his faithfulness, his character is steady, it's sure, it's, to use a a theological word, it is immutable. He is unchanging, and yet we are changing. Our world is changing. That means, you know what, in the midst of your fear, your struggles, your anxiety, your pain, your suffering, the stuff of life in which we all face, God is steady. Steady. 
His love is steady. His character is steady. His character is unchanging. So you can trust him. Titus 1-2 tells us that God never lies. And that means that you can take God at his word. You can take the promises of God to the bank. Because behind them is, a, is the character of a God whose word is true and reliable and, and sufficient and binding on our lives. That's what 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And even as the psalmist is, is pouring out his heart before the Lord, he recognizes that there is one who is sovereign over all. The one who can ultimately meet all of his hurts, all of his pains, all the frustrations, all of the struggles. You know, we're living in a, in a time of even political uncertainty. And even to some people, we're, we're living in a time when it seems like there is a great deal of, of change about to happen in the next year or so. Well, in fact, we're entering into a political a season of a political uh, discourse in our country with the upcoming presidential election next year. And what a better time is it? To proclaim that the Lord's character is sure and steady. That, that in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through, whether, whether that is because of something that is happening you know, at the local government level or even regionally or at the state level or nationally or even internationally or maybe it's more at home. Maybe it's within the, even the confines of your own home. The Lord is steady. His love is steadfast. His promises remain the same. He remains the same. He is unchanging. You know, I began by talking in the the beginning of this study about that man, William Cushing, and how he wrote this, this hymn, the rock that is higher than I. He wrote that during a time of frustration. And he was praying, Lord, give me something to do. And then he was contacted by other people and he prayed, send me something that I might do. And Cushing sent him the text of the hymn, Hiding in Thee. You see, maybe that's you today. Maybe you're like Cushing. Maybe you are going through a time of deep frustration. Maybe it's over marital conflict or relational conflict, or maybe it's over financial frustrations. Maybe it's even over political frustrations. And, and what we need to remember in the midst of all of our frustration is the Lord remains the same. It's a simple but it's a profound truth because our God is self-sufficient in and of himself. In fact, that was the point that, that, that the Lord made to Moses in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. This is the same point that Jesus makes seven times in John's gospel, I am. God is self-sufficient in and of himself. 
That means that God is always sufficient enough for you. No matter what you're going through, he remains the same. What that means is, in the midst of whatever today brings you, or tomorrow brings you, or whatever the past has brought you to the point in which you are today, God is the, the same. Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And what that means is that his character is sure. His character is steady. He is unchanging. And yet, in the midst of a changing culture, we can trust him. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 tells us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. And that's an appropriate word to end our time together because, you know what, you might be filled with all sorts of facts and you might know all sorts of Bible verses and you might know all a great deal about the Bible and church history and, and even more. And yet I ask you, do you know the Lord? Because to know the Lord means that you know him not with a head full of facts, but you know him, you know him to be Christ the, the Lord in your heart. You know you have come to saving faith in Christ, and that is far more than just mere facts, although facts are important. But have you come to faith in Christ? Have you come to trust the one who is sovereign over all things from beginning to middle to end and everywhere in between? Do you know that the Lord is self-sufficient in and of himself? And do you believe that? Do, does your life reflect that truth even more? And here's another question. How are you doing at walking out that truth in your own life? Because it's in the stuff of life that our theology has put to the test. In fact, I'll even go as far as to take that a little bit further for you. It's in the stuff of life where our theology is proved, where our faith is refined. This is what James 1, 2 through 3 tells us. That we are to consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face what? Trials of various kinds. Jesus said in John 16, that in this world you will experience what? Difficulty. Trials. Paul said the, the same to Timothy. And yet in the midst of the trials of our lives, and even in the midst of the temptations of our lives, is, is our Lord, who is our high priest. And in Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, and Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, what we discover is we have one who is, he, he was tempted in every respect, and yet he never sinned. This is why Hebrews 4, 15 summons us to come before his throne to find help in our time of need. So I ask you, do you know your need? Have you come to see your need of Christ? Have you repented and put your trust and hope in Christ alone? And if you have, do you just 
view the Christian life as a set of, of intellectual things in which you gain more information and knowledge? Or do you see, yes, that 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 doctrine, that teaching that comes from the word that you're reading and you're studying and you're learning more about, that, that, that it leads to something, that it leads to being transformed by the renewal of our mind, as Romans 12.2 says, and as Romans 8.28 says, being conformed to the image of Christ. Do you see that? And then how are you doing in a James 1.22 way of not just being a hearer only, but a doer? How are you doing in walking that out with other people in your local church, serving them, loving them, caring for them, befriending the hurting and the struggling? How are you doing at using the opportunities that God has given all of us to share of Christ and his glory on social media? It's a question. How, and, but even more importantly than that, how are you doing, men, at leading your families with the truth of God? How are you even doing at leading yourself in your own reading and studying of Scripture? And then out of that, leading your family in a God-honoring way, leading your spouse, telling others about Christ, how are you doing at it? Because it's easy to, to, to get up on our soapbox. It's easy to talk about all of these things. But at the end of the day, our faith is to be put into action. The Christian life is ultimately not just an intellectual enterprise. It's a matter of being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ in all of life for God's glory alone that others might be able to see Christ being formed in us. There is no greater reason in which we are still here. All of us are still here on earth right now. And why we're not immediately at the moment of salvation die and go to be with the Lord. See, we have work to do. Jesus goes after, John 10 says, he goes after the one lost sheep. He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one lost sheep. Jesus says in Luke 19.10 that he came to seek and to save the lost. We know the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28.18-20. through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. This is a great work of the church, but it's the great work of every Christian as well as we as we gather together on the Lord's Day, and then as we scatter to the various places that God has called us to, whether that's a janitor, whether that's a stay-at-home mom, whether you do nails or, or you know, toenails, or you do hair, or whatever job that God has given to you, be faithful in that place to share of Christ, to demonstrate the love of God to others to model the fruits of the Spirit for God's glory alone. Because what this does is it models, a, it models for other people what a life lived well for God's glory alone looks like. And at the end of the day, all of us live always, as R.C. Sproul said, before the face of God. All of our lives are to be quorum Deo. How are you doing at that? How are you dealing with the frustration and the difficulty of life? 
You know, if we're all honest, we all have struggles. I have struggles. Believe it or not, I do. I don't, I'm still learning in my own Christian life, even after over 30 years of walking with the Lord. I'm still learning to grow and to deal appropriately with frustration. That's just a reminder. I remember one of my mentors, been in ministry 40 years. He's now with the Lord, but I remember him. He was very a godly man. I never saw him get angry. I never saw him get upset, but he said, Dave, I'm telling you, I'm still growing in gentleness and I'm going to be until I go to be with the Lord. And maybe, dear friend, that's you today, if you're honest. Are you willing to be honest? Are you willing to to take your frustration, to take your fears, to take your struggles, to take it all to the Lord and cast your burdens on Him who is faithful and true and steady? He remains the same. Let's pray. Lord, if anything, we all need the reminder that you remain the same. You are steady. You are steadfast. You are faithful to your word and to the character of God revealed in Scripture. And Lord, we are so thankful that we serve a Lord and a King and a Master who remains the same. And yet help us to realize the the many ways in which we are self-sufficient, and yet you always remain sufficient in and of yourself. So help us to trust in the Lord. Help us to trust in the sufficiency of our King. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.